That's our prayer to you this morning, O oh God. Help us to see that the Lord Jesus is the only true solid rock. And we pray this in his name, amen. There are all sorts of issues over which people in our country divide today. Issues like, which ice cream flavor is better, chocolate or vanilla? I want to actually get a show of hands. These are your only two options. I'm not, you're not thinking about Rocky Road or mint chocolate chip, which is the best ice cream ever. You have two options. Chocolate, raise your hand. Whoa! All right, hands down. Vanilla. The people have spoken. Chocolate takes a day. Or maybe we move up a notch in importance, like who is the greatest basketball player of all time, Jordan or LeBron? It's, obviously, it is Michael Jordan. Or what are the greatest Jordan shoes of all time? Are they the Air Jordan 1s or the Jordan 5s? You would have to know what those are to know the difference I was a fan of the Jordan 5s. I was so desperate to own a pair of Jordan 5s as a kid that I told my parents that the last pair in the store fit me when they were like two sizes too small. It was the first pair of shoes my parents ever spent more than $100 on, and my toes burst through the front within like two months. My dad's here this morning. I don't think he knew that at the time. They were too small. (laughs) Or maybe we move up another notch in importance, and we think about issues that divide us socially, right? These are the ones that you probably thought about. Are you Republican or Democrat or other? Where do you stand on issues related to gun control, climate change, or immigration? In each of these examples, right, we're we're faced with a question, an issue, or a topic, and based on our response, we're divided into different groups. And I think we all recognize that the stakes change depending on the issue, right? What you think about flavors of ice cream will have a much smaller and less important impact on your life than what you think about social issues, like the ones I just named. But social issues, as important as they are, aren't the most important issues over which we can divide. There's a whole other category of issues that are more important and will actually have a far greater impact on your life. Let's call them existential issues. Where did we come from? Does life have meaning? Does God exist? Can we know him? Or the most important question of all, is Jesus the fully divine and fully human savior of the world? And our passage today will show us that all of humanity can be divided into two groups based on their answer to that question. And the way that you answer that question will have massive ramifications for your earthly life and for your eternal life. So I want you to go ahead and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're looking at uh, verses 4 to 8 to 8 today. As we continue our study through the book of 1 Peter, if you're going to use the Bible that we provided, you'll find the passage on both pages 1014 and 1015. You should be looking for the, uh, once you get to those pages, look for the big number two, that's the chapter number, and then you're going to look down for the smaller number four after that. We're going to go from 
small number four through small number eight on page 1015. As always, I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it. We uh, often spend a lot of time looking at the verses that we are studying in a particular sermon. The Bible will play a very significant role in the sermon today, as we're not only going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, but we're all going to turn together to look at Psalm 118 to, uh, later in the sermon. So I just want to prepare you for that so that you can be ready to turn to Psalm 118 when we get to that point in the sermon. In the first half of chapter 1, We've heard so far about the glorious salvation that God has accomplished for his people. That's what the whole first half of chapter one is about. He chose us in eternity past. He set us apart by his spirit. He sanctified us or cleansed us by the blood of Jesus. More than that, we read that God caused us to be born again. He gave us a living hope and promises us an eternal, imperishable inheritance. Then in the second half of chapter one, And into chapter 2, Peter teaches us how we should live in light of the glorious salvation that God has worked for us. We, We see there that we're to set our hope fully on Jesus. We're to live holy lives. We're to live with a reverential fear and awe of the Lord. We're to love one another and long for God's word. We've looked at all of those things in weeks past. And that brings us to our passage today, where Peter really brings to a climax of sorts what God is doing for his people through Jesus. Yet, as he does that, he also shows us that Jesus and our response to Jesus is the dividing line of all dividing lines. How we respond to Jesus will determine our eternal destiny which we see described in our passage. Let me go ahead and read the passage for us now. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. And this is God's word. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. If you're taking notes, the main point of our message today is that there are only two ways to respond to Jesus. You can either come to him in faith or you can stumble over him in unbelief. According to scripture, there is no third way. There is no agnostic position. There is no middle ground. We either come to Jesus in faith or we stumble over him in unbelief. And that's crucial for us to understand because we'll find out, as I said, that there are massive ramifications for us depending on how we respond to what we learn about Jesus here. So we're gonna approach this passage 
in three points. Just giving you these points ahead of time so that you can find, kind of figure out where you are in the message. And if you want to take notes under these headings, that might help you. We're going to start by considering what this passage tells us about Jesus. And then we're going to consider the two responses to Jesus. So point one is consider Jesus. Point two, coming to Jesus in faith. Point three, stumbling over Jesus in unbelief. So first, let's consider Jesus. We need to know something about who Jesus is and what he came to do if we're going to see why we should come to him in faith, right? I want you to look at what Peter tells us about Jesus. Look again with me at verse four. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. In calling Jesus a living stone, Peter is drawing on architectural imagery and specifically on imagery related to the building of the temple. Peter is saying Jesus is a living stone, the cornerstone of a new temple. And we have to see how deeply rooted in the Old Testament this image is to grasp the glory of what Peter is teaching here. Right? Throughout Scripture, the temple was the place where God made his presence known among his people. Right? Outside of creating the universe as a massive temple to display his glory and wisdom and power, the very first temple that God created for his people was the Garden of Eden. It was in the garden that God lived with Adam and Eve. It was where God gave his people his command to live by and where they served him like priests. In fact, in the garden, God gave Adam the job of keeping and working the garden. It can also be translated keeping and protecting the garden, right? Which is the exact same job God would later give the priests at the temple in Israel. They were to keep and protect the temple. And we can see that the garden was the first temple because after Adam and Eve sinned and all mankind fell into sin and came under God's judgment, God chose the nation of Israel to be the special nation through whom he would display his glory to the world by dwelling among them in the temple. A temple that when it was built was made of things like massive cedar trees, which you would find in a garden. Not only that, the, tap, the temple, when it was built, the walls of the temple had things like trees and fruits and floral scenes carved into the wall of the temple. This was God's not-so-subtle way of saying, what I intended for Adam and Eve will be realized through you, the nation of Israel, if you will obey my commands. As I live with them in the garden, so I will dwell with you in the temple, and you will serve me as a kingdom of priests who display my glory to the world by walking in obedience to my commands. But the nation of Israel, just like Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. They didn't keep his commands. They rejected him and his ways. And like Adam and Eve before them, God brought judgment on Israel by sending them out of his presence into exile. And yet, throughout Israel's history, there is a consistent drumbeat of promises from God that in the future, 
God would send the Messiah, God's chosen servant, who would save his people from their sins and bring them back into the presence of God. Different images are used to describe who the Messiah would be and what he would do. Like, he would be the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. He would be the ark who saves us from God's judgment. He would be the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the prophet of God who speaks definitively on behalf of God, the high priest of God who atones for our sins and enters into God's presence on our behalf, the perfect king who sits on an eternal throne, and he would be the true temple of God, the one in whom the fullness of God perfectly and fully dwells. And that is the imagery that Peter is drawing on here. He's saying not only is Jesus the true temple of God, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells, he's also the cornerstone of a new temple that God is building and in which his presence would one day fill, which is why Peter cites that promise from Isaiah chapter 28 in verse 6. You can go ahead and look there with me at verse 6. If we turned to Isaiah 28, we'd find that God is pronouncing judgment on his people because they have refused to trust in him. They have chosen the path of being their own gods. They have chosen the path of putting their trust in their own wisdom, literally placing the hope of their lives in foundations that will not last. And in the midst of that pronouncement of judgment, God promises to lay a better foundation, to lay a chosen and precious cornerstone, a living stone, and to show that he's not talking about some actual inanimate object like a stone, God goes on to say that whoever trusts in him, the cornerstone will not be put to shame. But how would God lay this stone? Imagine you're an Israelite and you hear this promise and you're thinking to yourself, yes, I want to follow you, Lord, but you're saying you're going to lay a stone that's rejected, but whoever trusts in him will not be put to shame. How are you going to lay this stone? Like, how can a man be likened to a gigantic cornerstone, and why are you going to lay this stone? This is, in my opinion, where this passage gets really good. Peter goes on to say in verse 7, if you look there with me, that those who believe in Jesus will receive honor, but for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And here, we see another image introduced to tell us about Jesus. Jesus isn't just the true temple. He's also the victorious king. Why do I say that? Because Peter is citing Psalm 118. Go ahead and turn there with me. I want you guys to turn to Psalm 118. I want you to see this for yourself. I want you to see that Psalm 118 teaches us that the victorious king and the true temple, the cornerstone, are the same person. If you have Psalm 118 open in front of you, what I want you to do is just scan it with me. I'm going to summarize large chunks of the psalm so that you can see what's going on. You can just listen to my description and try to see where I'm getting it from in these sections. 
in verses one to four, we see that an individual Israelite is leading the nation and giving thanks to God for his steadfast love. Then in verses five to nine, he describes some distress he experienced and how during that distress, he took refuge in the Lord and how God helped him in the midst of it. But then in verses 10 to 13, we see that the distress he was experiencing was actually a war, a battle against the nations and that the help he received from God led to his victory over the nations. Look at the repetition. I was surrounded and in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was victorious in battle over my enemies. Then in verses 14 to 16, he extols God's power and help. The Lord is my salvation. Then in verses 17 to 18, apparently the battle was devastating. He was disciplined severely, you should see in in verse 18. But he knew in the midst of it that he would not die, but instead would live. And because he was victorious in battle, look at verse 19. He says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. That is the picture of a king coming home from battle to his city and saying, I have won. I have been victorious. Now open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter in. He's a victorious king returning home alive from battle. And so in verse 21, he thanks God for answering him and saving him. Then comes verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Friends, In the context of Psalm 118, this embattled but victorious king who has experienced the Lord's salvation is talking about himself. He is the rejected stone that has become the cornerstone. And that embattled but victorious king, that rejected stone that has become the cornerstone, is none other than Jesus Christ. And we know this because when Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey for the Passover that would culminate with his death on the cross, do you know what psalm the Israelites were singing at his entrance into Jerusalem? Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, verse 26. Look there with me. As the victorious king comes through the gates of the city, Psalm 118, the people sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The victorious king is here. The cornerstone is here. And why did King Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? To wage war against his enemies. Not physical enemies like the nations, but the enemies of sin, death, Satan, and hell. And on the cross, the king was surrounded by the nations. Rome and Israel together, they surrounded him on every side. On the cross, Psalm 118, he was disciplined severely, but not for his own sins. But as Peter will later go on to tell us, he himself... For our sins, 
in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, the victorious king's wounds, you have been healed. We have been healed. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was crucified and killed for our sins, yet he went to the cross willingly because King Jesus knew, I will not die, but I shall live. Though he ultimately died on the cross and was buried, God heard his distressed cries and answered him by raising him from the dead. And in the resurrection, in his resurrection from the dead, the Lord had become his salvation. Though his enemies surrounded him, in the name of the Lord, he cut them off. His resurrection, proof positive that he is the victorious king. And in his resurrection from the dead, Jesus also proved incontrovertibly that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They rejected him by nailing him to the cross. And in his resurrection from the dead, he became the cornerstone. And we know that because after he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven saying, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord, his disciples went and began proclaiming the good news of salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. His disciples began preaching that good news that Jesus died to ransom us from the power of sin and that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And one of those sermons was preached in Acts chapter 4 by none other than Peter, who said in Acts chapter 4 to the Jewish people who had crucified Jesus, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Friends, I, I hope you see here that Jesus is the victorious king who defeated sin, death, Satan, and hell on the cross. And in his death and resurrection, the rejected stone became the cornerstone of a new and true temple of God. And this Jesus calls all of you here today to repent of your sins and put your trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And he promises that if you do, the record of your sins will be completely wiped away and you will be given new life, born again by the power of God's spirit. The question is for you, how are you going to respond to him? How are you going to respond to his command that all people everywhere repent and believe in him? What we see in the text and throughout scripture is that there are only two ways to respond. We either come to him in faith or we stumble over him in unbelief. Which brings us to our second point. Let's consider what it looks like to come to Jesus in faith. The first of the two ways we can respond to Jesus is by coming to him in faith. I want you to look again at the very beginning of verse four. Peter says, as you come to him. Now that's kind of vague. That could mean anything, right? But, but if we just keep reading the passage, we see that he means coming in faith. Notice again the last line of the citation from Isaiah. 
Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Then again in the very next verse, so the honor is for you who believe. These Christians had heard the good news about the salvation God offers through his son, Jesus Christ, and when they heard it, they believed. They came to him in faith. They, they said, we are not trusting ourselves any longer. We are not trusting anything in this world. We are laying hold of Jesus Christ and his commands, and we are following him in faith. Now, I said that how we respond to Jesus has massive ramifications for the rest of our earthly life and into eternity. I want you to notice the ramifications of believing in Jesus. Notice the ramifications it has for our lives now. Look at verse five. As we come to Jesus, we also, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That is, all who believe are being built into a spiritual temple. You'd have to imagine it with your mind. So it's a a spiritual temple that God's glorious presence is going to fill for all eternity. Often when we talk about being a temple of the Lord, we think individually. In America, it's an individualistic culture. And so it's often, we often think about, well, I am a temple of the Lord individually. The spirit of God dwells in me. That is absolutely true. Scripture teaches that. But Peter's like, hey, y'all, don't want you to miss. There's a whole other side to this temple of the Lord thing for Christians. When you put your faith in Jesus, you individually become like a spiritual brick in a larger spiritual temple made up of all those who believe in Jesus. And more specifically, Peter wants us to see the glorious purposes God has for us as members of a local church. Right, he's saying to these Christians, all of you are individual living stones being built into something greater than yourself. God's presence is going to fill that spiritual house in a way different from how he dwells in you. It's in the gathering of believers in local churches that God's presence is made known in a unique way. As the local church gathers, we experience the power and presence of the Lord in a way that we can't when we're not gathered. Yes, the Lord is with us individually, yet at the same time, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, he's talking about the gathering of Christians to worship him in local congregations, there I am with them. That's also why Paul says in Corinthians that when non-Christians come to the gathering of the church, and see the manifestation of God's power among them, some of them will respond by declaring, God really is among you people. And because God is building us corporately into his dwelling place, we should continue prioritizing gathering each week to worship the Lord together. So can God use online sermons to grow us in our faith? Can God encourage us as we listen to spiritual songs on Spotify? Can God build us up by relationships with other Christians that we carry on online? Of course. But in our increasingly digital culture, where digital versions of real life are regularly offered as legitimate replacements for the real thing, we have to be reminded of the intrinsically personal enfleshed corporate nature of the church. 
You won't grow the same way by just listening to sermons online or just listening to music on Spotify or by mediating your relationships with other Christians through a screen the same way that you would if you gathered in person with a local church to sing together, to pray together, to hear the word preached together, to walk together in love together, sharpening one another as we rub up against each other, helping point one another to the Lord that we might all walk in holiness because God has tied his presence and his power to the corporate gathering in a way that he hasn't to online content. This is especially important for the teens in the congregation, maybe the college students as you're thinking about what to do with your life or uh, maybe where to plant yourself long-term, especially for the teens thinking about leaving the congregation or getting closer to leaving for uh, college. If you're moving to another area for school, I wanna encourage you to put at the top of your list of priorities finding a local church where you'll hear the gospel preached and where you will live in community with other Christians. It's in the context of a local church that God normally does most of his work to shape you. And what is he shaping you into? A living stone that will become part of a glorious spiritual temple that he is going to fill forever. You can't think of a more glorious ramification for your life than that. But it's not the only ramification. We also see that those who come to Jesus in faith are not only being built into a new temple. Look again at verse five. We're also being built into a holy priesthood. Gotta be honest, this is expert level metaphor mixing going on here, right? When I first read this passage, I'm like, come on, Peter, pick one image and stick with it, dude. I'm having trouble tracking you here. Stones, temples, priesthood. What do you want me to take away from all of this? But it makes sense if you think about it, right? Priests were intimately tied to the operation of the temple in the Old Testament. Kids, can any of y'all tell me what job responsibilities priests had? There's a bunch of different ones. Raise your hand if you know one. Abram? To make sacrifices? What's, what's some other things priests did? Simon? Burn incense in the temple, so offer sacrifices, burn incense. Anything else? Right back here? Shout it out a little louder. To keep it and maintain, just kind of general like, okay, on my checklist today, I've got to mop the floors. That's exactly right. They had to keep and maintain the temple. They had to make sure the showbread was uh, in the appropriate place, that the lights remained, the candles remained burning, that the basin had the water, and they had to take care of the temple. So Offering sacrifices, offering incense, taking care of the temple is exactly what they did. A large part of their work, though, I think the most significant part of their work, which has already been named, is, was tied up in the offering of daily sacrifices. So they would offer animal sacrifices as guilt offerings or sin offerings for people who had sinned to atone for their sins. They offered incense offerings, as Simon mentioned, in praise of God. They gave grain offerings to give thanks to God for his abundant provision. Now, can any of the kids tell me, this is gonna be a little bit harder, what was unique about the priests? What privilege did they have that no other Israelites had? We'll go to Jack in the front. 
they were the only ones who could go into the presence of God in the temple. All the other Israelites in Israel, they, they were not allowed to go into God's presence in the temple to offer sacrifice. They had to mediate their relationship with the Lord through another person. But Peter is saying here, the great privilege we now have through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus, we all now, as priests in God's kingdom, have direct access to God. God has made us into a kingdom of priests, meaning we can all come directly into his presence through Jesus Christ. I don't know if that's a comfort to you, but you don't have to mediate your relationship with God through any other human being. God calls you to come directly to him through the great high priest, Jesus Christ. You have direct access to God as a priest in his kingdom if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' death and resurrection, remember the veil of the curtain that blocked everyone off from the Holy of Holies? The veil of the curtain was torn in two so that all of God's people can now come right into the presence of God. More like, actually, the veil was torn in two so that God would search the world for his people and come bring them into his kingdom. But either way you skin it, we have direct access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And not only do we have direct access to God, but we can now offer our entire lives as a pleasing sacrifice to God. No longer do we have to offer animal sacrifices to God because Jesus has offered the once for all sacrifice for sins. Instead, as priests of God, we offer our whole lives as a sacrifice to God. That's what Peter means by spiritual sacrifices. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, you see that these spiritual sacrifices are things like praising God in prayer, singing songs and conversation about the Lord. In Romans 12, Paul says that we can offer our whole lives as a living sacrifice by walking in faithfulness to God in all that we do. Friends, if you are following Jesus, I hope you see how this infuses all of life with meaning and purpose and power and glory. Literally, everything you do as you walk in faithfulness to God can be offered to God as a spiritual sacrifice to show how good and wonderful and glorious he is. Wherever you are in life, whatever your circumstances in life, you can offer your whole life as a spiritual sacrifice. Are you a garbage man? You can offer your work of picking up trash on a weekly basis as a spiritual sacrifice to God. Are you a college student? As you walk in dependence on God, you can offer your studies and everything you do extracurricularly as you're walking in faithfulness to him as a spiritual sacrifice. Are you at home taking care of littles and seeing little to no fruit among them and getting no thanks from the children you're caring for? God sees you and says, offer all that you're doing as a spiritual sacrifice to me to see you serve in those ways, to see you sacrifice in those ways. Your child may not be thanking you, but it's a pleasing aroma to me, and I am glorified in that. Are you retired and perhaps feeling aimless or overlooked? God sees you, and he says, you, you, can, you can offer every waking moment to me as a spiritual act of worship. 
you facing health issues, unemployment, loneliness, major life changes, whatever it is, God says, depend on me, entrust yourself to me, and offer everything you're walking through as a spiritual sacrifice to me. Now, some of you might say, but John, I, I hear you, but I feel like everything I do is tainted with sin. It's not perfect. It's not a worthy sacrifice. How can I, how can I offer the, even my motivations, I see some of the things, I, mean, I, see, I look at my motivations and they're, they're not entirely right, right? No, none of our sacrifices are perfectly pure. None of them will be free from the stain of sin, but that, that's why Peter says that they're acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, you walk in faithfulness to God, mixed motivations, things stained with sin. I, I, I get, you walk in faithfulness to God, God, I'm, I'm, I'm desiring to follow you here imperfectly, but I'm, I'm desiring to follow you in this thing or that thing, and I'm offering this to you as a spiritual sacrifice, and Jesus says, give it to me. Give it to me. Let me get my perfectly righteous hands on it. I'm gonna clean it up, and I'm gonna offer it to the Lord, and whatever comes from me, pleasing aroma to the Lord. Friends, even if you see in yourself double-mindedness, nothing I'm doing is perfectly, how do I offer this? You walk in faithfulness to God. You give your spiritual sacrifices to Jesus and the great high priest says, I'm gonna take them and I'm gonna make them perfect and they will burn like incense before the Lord for all time. You can come to Jesus in faith and see the glory, privilege, and power that God has for you as you do that. But not everyone we see comes to Jesus in faith. And that brings us to point three, stumbling over Jesus in unbelief. Even though Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, the one who had been promised throughout the Old Testament over and over again, when he finally arrived, the vast majority of Israelites did not come to him in faith, but instead rejected him. Notice again what Peter says about Jesus in verse four. He was rejected by man. That rejection was seen in the opposition he faced throughout his ministry, culminating in his death on the cross. Now look at verse seven. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I want to address the idea real quick that certain individuals are destined for unbelief. We are not, you could spend hours, weeks considering this topic. We're not going to have that time this morning. The Bible holds two realities in perfect tension and never gives to either side of those realities. God gives them to us in scripture and does not resolve them for us. What are those realities? God is sovereign over all things. Nothing happens that is not part of his decree or his plan. At the same time, scripture's clear, God is never the author of sin and humans are entirely responsible for the decisions that they make. We're never told how God's sovereignty and our responsibility work out perfectly. They're simply asserted over and over again. If you wanna think more about this, I have two copies of a booklet called Does God Control Everything that I'm gonna give away this evening at our Sunday evening prayer service. If you wanna think more about it, it's a very helpful booklet and I will give them away there. But what I want you to notice, as perplexing as it may be to us, is how little attention Peter gives to the fact that people are destined for a disobedience. He simply asserts it and then moves on. He spends way more time dealing with the fact that some people 
stumble over Jesus in unbelief. In verse eight, they disobey his word. In the context of what Peter's talking about, his word, obviously kind of all of scripture is in view here, but it refers specifically to the good news of the gospel. They disobey the good news of salvation through Jesus by not believing it. See resurrected from the dead, not changing. Don't believe your claims. Don't believe what you're saying is true, right? They do not believe that Jesus is the fully divine and fully human savior who came into the world to save us from their sins, save us from our sins. And so they stumble over him and are offended by him. That's why he's called a rock of offense. People were and still are offended by his claims. People are offended by the exclusivity of his claims. They don't like that Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one will come to the Father except through me. He's the only way for us to be. There is no other person, figure, claiming to be divine or otherwise. There's no other religious. It's through faith in Jesus Christ, the fully divine, fully human, Savior of the world, who died on the cross for our sins, rose again for our justification. It is only through faith in him that we can be saved. There is no other way. And people can be offended by that. Offended that we won't say, though you can also try these other gods, or, hey, if you know, if you work hard enough, God will save you. Jesus is like, no effort. That's why people are offended that what Jesus said in the, in, in the gospels, no one is good. He said that to y'all, me. There is none good but God. People are offended by the things that Jesus said and taught. He taught that there are so many things, he taught so many different things that we don't like or want to hear. He is a rock of offense that many people trip over and reject when they hear his claims. What about you? What do you say about Jesus? For the kids in the congregation, you might, you might think, okay, well, what do my parents say? And I'm gonna say, say what they say. I wanna encourage you. What do you say? God, God's gonna cause all of us, we're, we're, we're all individually gonna have to stand before God and it's our confession on our own that God will judge us by. What do you say about Jesus? Kids, I wanna encourage you. Lay hold of Jesus by faith. Lay hold of Jesus, believe in him, trust in him as the savior of the world. He is a perfect foundation. But I wanna ask all of you, what do you say about Jesus? Do you believe that he's the cornerstone, the resurrected king who has defeated the enemies of sin, death, Satan, and hell? Will, will you come to him in faith? Or are you gonna stumble over him in unbelief? It's important to know that unbelief can look a lot of different ways. Like there isn't just one, oh, that person definitely has stumbled over Jesus and that person's okay because I can look at them and tell, right? It can look a lot of different ways. It can look like open hostility where somebody yells, screams, hates Jesus, doesn't want any, okay, that person is stumbling over Jesus in unbelief, right? But it can also look like quietly and kindly refusing to engage with his claims. It can also look like indifference, apathy towards him, like cares, like really? Do I, do I need to think about this today? According to Jesus, if we don't come to him in faith, 
we are stumbling over him in unbelief. So I'll ask again, what about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he who he said he is? Is he God in the flesh and the only way for you and I to be saved? I'm asking in love because how you answer that question will have massive ramifications for this life and eternal life. If you stumble over Jesus in unbelief, that means your life now, right now, is being built on the wrong foundation, the wrong cornerstone. You see, in architecture, the cornerstone is the most critical stone in the entire building process because how it's oriented on the ground and if it's laid properly determines where the rest of the building is going to is going to be oriented and built and and what foundation it's going to lay on. Every other stone is oriented to that stone. So if the cornerstone is laid improperly, the whole building will be off-center. When we stumble over Jesus in unbelief and choose another cornerstone to build our lives on, we inevitably build on a faulty foundation. You may not feel like that, and I get that. You might think, oh, my life's going fine, you know? I haven't trusted in Jesus, but things are going well for me. From God's perspective, God looks down and he sees a bunch of leaning tower of Pisa's walking around. Like, I don't know if you realize this, but you're five degrees off. That thing is tilting, and if you don't get help soon, it's gonna fall. Why is the leaning tower of Pisa lean the way that it does? Built on the wrong foundation. Faulty foundation. Leans, thing is whole leaning. It's never, never gonna be fixed, never gonna be set upright. All too often, we make things like money, success, other people's approval, comfort, health and wellness, personal autonomy and self-expression. We make those things our cornerstone. I'm going to do what I want. That, that is you choosing a different cornerstone than Jesus. That's what it looks like to, to stumble in unbelief. Whatever we live for, whatever we need to have or hope most in is our true cornerstone. But every cornerstone that isn't Jesus produces a life that is off-center, that is not going to grow up the way that it was meant to. Every cornerstone that isn't Jesus is a faulty foundation to build your life on. If you live for those things, you will ultimately find that they will fail you. Not only that, but there are terrible eternal consequences for stumbling over Jesus in unbelief. In verse 8, Peter is citing a passage from Isaiah 8. In that passage, God is confronting the Israelites for turning away from him. Then he calls them to trust in him alone, saying, he will either be a sanctuary to them, a place of refuge, or a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. But then he goes on to say that those who stumble in unbelief will be broken on that stone. What he has in view there is final judgment type breaking. There will be no salvation. In February of 2019, uh, Zhuan Wang, a 56-year-old woman from Cupertino, California, was killed while hiking in Yosemite Park. And it turns out, after this very terrible event, it turns out that Wang ignored the very clear trail closures that were on the signs on Mist Trail, which is where she ended up being killed. There were very clear signs saying, do not enter, keep out, trail is not safe. She ignored the signs and literally, like 
just a few hundred yards past the signs, was found dead because rocks and falling icicles had fallen on her. It is a terrible story that illustrates the danger of ignoring clear signs meant to protect us. Friends, in this very moment, God is laying Jesus Christ on the path of your life as a spiritual stone. Right now, this is, what, this is what's happening here. God is laying Jesus on the path of your life as a, a giant stone, a cornerstone. Are you going to ignore him and cross over that stone and see what comes on the other side of it? Or are you gonna stop right there and lay hold of that stone and be built by that stone and along that stone as a living stone into a spiritual temple? Friends, notice again, verse seven. The honor is for you who believe. The honor of you here is predominantly the honor that awaits at the final judgment. It's the culmination and fulfillment of what God is doing right now. In this passage in 1 Peter and here today, as people from every tribe and tongue and nation forsake the faulty foundations and cornerstones they've built their lives on as they turn from sin and trust in Jesus, God is building a spiritual house, a temple that he is going to fill for all eternity. In the new heavens and new earth, we will dwell in the immediate presence of God forever. And what will we do there? We will serve him as priests in his kingdom forever, enjoying the abundant life that God has planned for all who've built their life on the living stone, the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what about you? Will you come to him in faith? Or will you stumble over him in unbelief? Friends, build your life on the only foundation that will last. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray for an outpouring of your spirit to help us come to Jesus in faith. Repentance and salvation, these are gifts from heaven. We pray that you would lavishly pour out your gifts for our good and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.